All right. Well, welcome. What have we been studying this semester in theological equipping? Just shout it out. Ecclesiology. Good job, Dave, on top of it. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, the study of the church. Well, today I'm going to be teaching on preaching. Let that blow your mind. And then in the sermon, Jeff's going to be preaching on teaching. No, he's not going to do that. But uh, we're going over uh, preaching today. Now, let me tell you why. This might be the first question you have in your mind is, Zach, I don't plan on ever being a pastor. I don't plan on ever delivering a sermon. Why are we spending time talking about preaching as we uh, are studying theological equipping? Here's the big reason. Ready? Though you might not preach personally, you will partake in preaching. You will listen to preaching. You will sit under preaching for the rest of your life, okay? So when we taught on baptism, that doesn't mean that you personally will do a bunch of baptisms, but you yourself have been baptized and you'll witness baptisms, so you need to know what it means. You yourself might never officiate a communion service, but you'll partake of communion. In the same way, you yourself might not preach, but you will partake of preaching. And so that's why we're going over this. One of the biggest means of grace that God has given us in the church is the preaching of the word. Okay, that, uh, that is in a sense the kind of the central means of grace given to the church, which is the preaching of the word. And so that's a major part of what we do in church. And so we're going to talk about it today. What is it? What should it be? These kind of things. Okay, now this is also important in case you ever decide to go to another church. Boo, stay here at Parkway the rest of your life. I know you won't. Right? You might be called to another location, you might take another job, all of that's totally fine, but you need to know that when you're looking for a church, the most important thing about that church is doctrinal, okay? Whether or not they do or don't accurately preach the word. If they do everything else great, and that is not central, they don't herald the preaching of the word as central, that is a problem and a deficiency there. And so this will also help you, uh, hopefully, in the future. Uh, additionally, not, this is just kind of a random comment that I want to mention because some people are confused on this. Uh, the Bible does not restrict preaching to elders alone, okay? Elders do preach, they do teach, they do guard the doctrine of the church, but there's nothing in the Bible that just says that somebody who's not an elder cannot preach, okay? Now, please don't send us in your resumes. We've got staff members and elders who are able to preach, but I just want you to know that we don't want to add restrictions where the Bible doesn't add restrictions. So with that in mind, what is preaching? Let me give you a few definitions. First, let me give you the boring kind of Webster definition. Preaching is the delivery of a sermon or religious address to an assembled group of people, typically in a church service. Okay, that's what we typically think of as preaching. That's a pretty good definition. Let me give you another one. The preaching of the word is the central focus in a Christian worship service and the means of grace whereby God saves the lost, sanctifies the saved, and redeems the world for his glory. That's how God works. God could have just teleported the gospel message into the minds of the elect. He could have just wiped evil people off the face of the earth completely, but instead, the way that he decided that evil would be pushed back, that our lives would be transformed, that the lost would be reached evangelistically is through the preaching of the word. Now, let me give you my favorite definition of preaching, which is not in your notes. It is this. Preaching is the manifestation of the incarnate word from the written word through the spoken word. That's from Bishop Manning, okay? The manifestation of the incarnate word, talking about Christ, from the written word, the Bible, through the spoken word. That is what preaching is. So, with that in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about preaching in the Bible, we're going to talk about these kind of different things, and then we'll spend a good chunk 
uh, of this time talking about what preaching should and should not be, okay? So uh, again, this is not so that we might become cynical or mean or judge other churches. One of the things you'll hear me say multiple times today is that there's not one right way to preach. There are a bunch of wrong ways, but there's not just one right way. There are several right ways that you can preach and still be faithful to the text. Do you even see that in the Bible itself? Right? Some sermons are very short and pithy. Hang on as we get into uh, the story of uh, Jonah uh, in a few weeks and we talk about his sermon to uh, Nineveh, which is basically repent or God will kill you, and that's pretty much it. Uh, but then other sermons are longer. Some of them are topical. Some of them are more expository, etc. So we'll see a bunch of those throughout the Bible. So first, let's go over some purposes of preaching in the Bible. Okay? These are not all of them. They're just some of them. Here's the first one to call people to repentance. Notice that that is what preaching should do. It should call people to repentance. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Now, notice Jesus is preaching. What does his preaching look like? Saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that part of the purpose of preaching is to call people to repentance. You should always leave a service feeling awful about you and your self-effort, but then encouraged about Christ and the fact that everything's going to be okay because of Christ. Okay? So uh, you should leave, in a sense, loving Christ and hating yourself. I don't mean morbidly hating yourself. I just mean realizing that you're not the hero. Okay? You're not the point. Number two, to prophesy judgment. To prophesy judgment. Look at this. This is from Ezekiel 21, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against. Notice you don't just preach, you can preach against things, preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you. I will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut uh, off from you both righteous and wicked. Notice that you can prophesy judgment. Uh, You can warn people more corporately, not just individually with preaching. Number three to guard true doctrine. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, uh, his, is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. Notice that phrase, itching ears. That is a very big thing you should notice what's going on in culture. People hear and promote and retweet whatever is popular in culture. Uh, Itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Notice, they don't reorient their lives around the Bible. They reorient the Bible around whatever culture is already saying and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's another purpose there of preaching is to uh, guard true doctrine, okay? Number four, to encourage people to encourage people. Luke 7.22, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, that's specifically the good news of the kingdom, that God is pushing back what is evil in uh, the coming of Christ, but uh, notice that preaching is meant to encourage you, to hear that your sins are forgiven, that you have eternal life, that you don't have to carry your sin and your shame and these kind of things. That is all meant to encourage you, okay? Number five, to teach the Bible. Romans 2, 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach, there it is, against stealing, do you steal? So notice that there is uh, teaching the Bible to others. Notice that preaching and teaching here are linked. We'll talk about that in a second. Number six, to evangelistically herald the gospel. Evangelistically herald the gospel. Acts 10, 36. 
As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, okay? So notice that part of the purpose of preaching is to evangelize, it's to herald the gospel, it's to set forth the good news of Christ and his resurrection for our lives and joy. Now, those are some purposes of preaching. That's limited. We could go over a bunch of them. I just didn't want to give you a bunch of random things. Know that preaching can do a bunch of things. In the same way that we said baptism is symbolic of a bunch of things, Communion is symbolic of a bunch of things. You need to know that preaching can be used in several different ways that are often used together, okay? Next, maybe one of my favorite topics, the use of humor, mockery, sarcasm, and strong language in preaching. Let me just say something to you that maybe you do or don't know, okay? You are allowed to use the kind of language the Bible uses, amen? You should not be harsher than the Bible, nor should you be more sensitive than the Bible. <gasps> right? God's word is perfect. You don't need to turn it to the left or to the right. And so is it right at times to use humor, mockery, sarcasm, these kind of things in preaching? It is, okay? Isaiah mocks those who have idols. He doesn't just say, well, welcome to Israel church. We want to be very seeker sensitive. He says, you cut down a tree and you worship half of it and you throw the other half in the fire to heat your room. That's insane, right? He mocks them. God mocks Job. Put on your man pants. Where were you when I created the world? That kind of stuff. Jesus mocks the Pharisees. Jesus uses sarcasm. Far be it from me that a prophet should die outside of Jerusalem. These kind of things. It's all throughout the Bible. So you need to know sarcasm, mockery, humor, these kind of things, they're morally neutral. They can be used in a good way or they can be used in a bad way, but they're not bad in and of themselves, okay? So just know that there is a righteous mocking and an unrighteous mocking. There's a righteous sarcasm and an unrighteous sarcasm. Notice that we never mock God, okay? Typically, if we make fun of something or make some joke in a sermon, we're making fun of us, we're making fun of our sin, we're making fun of other people, but obviously you would never mock God. You would have nothing to mock him on because he's perfect. Now, I want to give you a reason why we use humor, especially here at Parkway. We use humor a lot, and it's not because we're trying to just give you some sort of shtick. It's not some sort of second job that we have on the weekend at a comedy club or any of these kind of things. Three big reasons why we use humor in our teaching and preaching here at, uh, at Parkway. Number one, we want to show you that God is a God of great joy. Do you believe that? I think a lot of times we think of God as like a cosmic killjoy. He's basically always mad, and if he ever laughed, he'd try to hide it. Okay? That's not the case. We're trying to let you know that nobody has more joy than God. Nobody is more self-satisfied than God. Nobody is doing better than God is. And so we want you to know that God is a God of joy. So there is a method to our madness. There's a reason why we do that. And one is to show you that God is loving and kind and joyful. Now, here's the second one. To make you not take yourself so seriously. To make you not take yourself so seriously. Take God seriously. Take the gospel seriously. Take sanctification seriously. But don't take yourself so seriously. Let me say it this way. Laughter in church is the sound of self-righteousness leaving the body, okay? That's what it is. It's the sound of self-righteousness leaving the body. We want you to laugh. We want you to know that that's okay. We want you to know that you're not the point. You don't have to take yourself seriously. You take God seriously. He's the point, but it's not about us. And so it's a way to humble ourselves in a sense. Laughing at yourself is humble. It's not proud. And then lastly, to help keep people engaged, okay? If I can tell a joke or tell a little story and it keeps people with me five minutes longer, that's five minutes more of them hearing the sermon that I need them to hear in those lessons. So there's a, there's a purpose to it. There's a method to the madness. Now, let me give you an excellent quote from uh, the famous playwright Moliere. Uh, by the way, I don't really like 
plays. <gasps> there, I've said it. Uh, if you're a play person or a drama person, sorry. Uh, I don't really like plays. I don't really like literature. I like the other liberal arts. I like history and philosophy and these kind of things, but I don't care about that. There is an excellent play written by Moliere called Tartuffe. Highly recommend it. T-A-R-T-U-F-F-E. You can read it in one or two sittings. It's not very long, but it is genius and very funny, and uh, it's an excellent play. But here's what he says. Look at this quote. I think it's really powerful. The mission of comedy is to correct men's vices. Most men are scolded by nothing quite so well as by the portrayal of their faults. It is a great blow to vice to expose it to everyone's laughter. We can easily stand being reprehended, but we cannot stand being mocked. Okay? So part of the purpose to do that is to humble ourselves. It's to let you see that ridiculous things uh, are ridiculous. And so know that in preaching, all these kind of literary devices and tools uh, are right and good and biblical. They can be used wrongly. I've heard people just be a jerk from the stage. All right, I'm sure I've done that myself multiple times. But the act in and of itself of using sarcasm or mockery or whatever is not wrong. It's whether or not it's used wrongly or rightly. There's a great story of uh, Martin Luther, the famous German reformer, who was just always struggled with anxiety and depression and condemnation, all these kind of things. And one day he was just beside himself with anxiety. And so his wife dressed up in all black funeral garb and walked into his office and said, because you're acting like God is dead, I decided I'd join you for his funeral. Okay? That is a righteous type of mocking. That's a strong woman, by the way. <laughs> Catherine Von Bora, she was pretty tough. She brewed beer in their bathtub, these kind of things. And so... <laughs> Uh, and so that's, uh, that's a righteous kind of, uh, of mockery because then he realizes, okay, I'm being ridiculous, okay, I'm being ridiculous. What is the difference between teaching and preaching, okay? What is the difference between teaching and preaching? Let me give you a few thoughts. Some people think that in teaching, it's more content, and in preaching, it's more application. I've heard people say that. Perhaps my favorite definition, I've heard people say, the difference is that in teaching, you talk, and in preaching, you yell. Uh, that one, I like that one. Here's the case I'm going to make is that there actually is no difference biblically, that preaching and teaching are actually the same thing in the Bible. Let me show you a few verses here. Acts 5:42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease, look, teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Acts 15:35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Notice that those go together. If you're preaching and you're talking about Christ, you also have to teach. You also have to uh, explain what is happening. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Notice that these terms are used interchangeably. Matthew 11.1, 1. when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went, uh, went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Okay? Luke 21, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. So I would challenge to say that there is no difference between teaching and preaching, that those two always should go together. I'll say it even stronger. I think the best preaching is actually more teaching. It's not when somebody just gets all hyped up and tries to get you hyped up and they're just all sweaty and they're just telling you to do better and try harder. I think the best and most powerful thing to do is to clearly explain God's word and if we really believe that's God's word, that's what's going to change you, okay? That's what's actually going to change you. So I think the best preaching is actually teaching. I think it's uh, explaining. I think it's cognitive. I think it's rational. I think that we've set forth the word clearly, and God changes people's hearts by the Spirit through using the Scriptures. It's not, uh, I think I've got it here. Truly explaining the Scriptures is the thing that changes people's lives, not getting emotionally hyped up and yelling at people to do better. Amen to that. Okay. 
Now, let's get into some interesting and, uh, and fun things. Let's talk about some different types of preaching, okay? Some different types of preaching. There's not just one way, right way to preach, but there are certainly some wrong ways. And so what I want to do is I want to give you some different ways that people can preach, that different uh, ways that pastors can put together sermons, etc. And we're going to go over a few pros and a few cons. Does that sound good? Okay, here's the first one. Topical preaching, okay? What is topical preaching? It's where one preaches on a topic using various passages throughout the Bible, okay? So let's say I'm teaching on forgiveness. I will use all these different passages in the Bible about forgiveness from the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's almost like a little systematic theology, and we'll talk about forgiveness, and we'll jump to a bunch of different passages. Or if I want to talk about angels, I'll find a bunch of things said about angels in the Old Testament, a bunch of things about angels in the New Testament, put it together, and we'll teach on angels. What you're doing with topical preaching is you're teaching, wait for it, on a topic, okay? That's what, uh, what topical preaching is. Now, let's go over some pros and some cons. By the way, Charles Spurgeon, the uh, prince of preachers, one of the greatest preachers of all time, did almost only topical sermons, okay? So these are not bad or wrong. Uh, let's go over some pros and cons. Let me have you yell out some pros and cons. What do you think are some benefits of this type of preaching? Application, it's easier to draw applications, I think, from a topic. I think that's probably true. What else? It is easier to write a topical sermon. Yeah, because you're able to take a bunch of things so you can talk about different things as they occur instead of being like, man, Paul here just keeps talking about circumcision or whatever. It does make it easier to prepare a, uh, a sermon. What else? Uh, that would be a con. Yes, proof texting can very quickly become a con. Okay, so here's a big problem with the topical method. You as a pastor have something you already believe and you want to say. Now you get a bunch of text and you say what you already wanted to say and you just get divine warrant for what you already wanted to say. Okay, so that's definitely a con. What else? Anything else? Yes, you have to have a thorough knowledge of that subject matter in the sense that, uh, one, you kind of already have to know what you're doing before you start, and two, uh, you're looking across all of Scripture. That would be a benefit is that you're saying what the whole Bible says on any one topic. So, a few pros. They're easier to understand, typically. They allow you to address topics that you think your people need. Okay, so there's a benefit, right? So when it's like Mother's Day and we're preaching on not Mother's Day, but like hell, sometimes it might feel like this doesn't seem very applicational, you know, or whatever it might be. Uh, they teach people to see what the entire Bible says on a topic. I think that's the strong benefit of topical sermons. Now, let me give you some cons. Number one, you don't end up preaching on everything in the Bible. You end up preaching on the topics you want to preach on, but you don't cover all of God's word. Okay, you try to determine what God wants your people to hear, but you don't really know. Okay, you don't really know. Here's what God wants you to hear, whatever's in the Bible. We could close our eyes, flip through the Bible, pick a book and teach on it, and God would be happy with that. Now, we don't do that. We, we do try to say what are some things where our people are, our culture's going through, whatever, uh, but we don't really know what God wants the people to hear other than the Bible. It's too easy to make the Bible say what you want it to say. And here's a big one. It doesn't teach your people to read the Bible for themselves. Okay, one of the best compliments I think we've ever gotten here at Parkway when it comes to preaching is somebody said that it teaches me how to read the Bible on my own. I'm used to hearing people walk line by line through the text and ask questions like, what does this mean originally? Who is this written to? What are some implications of that? So when I go home and I'm doing my Bible study in the morning or at lunch or whenever you do it, I'm thinking through those questions, okay? If you're doing a topical sermon, people don't learn how to read the Bible on their own in that way. Okay, next Preaching from one verse. Preaching from one verse. This is where the whole sermon focuses on only one verse or a small fragment of a larger context. 
Okay, where the whole sermon focuses on only one verse or a small fragment of a larger context. Now, let me be really clear. We're preaching on one verse today, okay? But we're doing it for a different reason, okay? As you walk through a text line by line, there are certain passages where you have to slow down and spend more time on those. You'll see this a lot when we get into 1 John. Some lines just need the entire sermon just to unpack that line. That's not unfaithful. That's not one-line preaching. One-line preaching is where you're doing this not walking line by line through a book of the Bible. Okay? One-line preaching is where you take something out of Deuteronomy and you just talk about it, something out of Matthew and just talk about it. It is linked to topical preaching, but it's not wrong to have sometimes bigger texts that you preach through. Last week, we had a bunch of verses in Jonah, and then smaller texts. This week, we have one. That's not the same kind of thing that I'm talking about here, so make sure you don't get those confused. Sorry I keep messing with my, uh, my mic. I've got uh, some, sort of, some sort of problem. Let me fix this real quick in front of you awkwardly so Tim doesn't yell at me later. Okay. Jonathan Edwards who wrote the most famous sermon to come out of the Americas, out of Deuteronomy 32:35? It was simply this phrase, their foot shall slip in due time. That's the text. And then he spends all this time and all this text talking about God's love, his judgment, why you need the gospel, all these kind of things just from one line. And so you see that this isn't wrong necessarily. Again, there are pros and cons to it, okay? I'll give you some, uh, I'll have you again yell out pros and cons. This will get really good in a second when we get to bad forms of preaching. And then someone's like, this good thing. And I'm like, nope, you're embarrassed, right? Whatever it is. But let's do some pros and cons. What are some pros or cons of preaching one verse from the Bible randomly? It could be out of context. Yes, very good. Uh, notice that uh, if I send you an email that's like two paragraphs, you don't ignore the email and just take one sentence and spend like an hour just being like, what does he mean by the here, right? You, it comes in a larger context. You're trying to see what the whole email teaches. All of the books of the Bible are not written for you to just chop up. We have to chop it up so that we have time to look at everything that's going on there. Originally, the letter of Romans or whatever would have just been read in its entirety. So yeah, it can be out of context. What else? Do what now? Yes, that is, a, that is a benefit of the one-line thing. You can go deeper because you have more time. Sometimes when we're going over multiple lines in a sermon, we have to go quickly through things. We have to skip over little things, not major things, but just for the sake of time, we can't cover everything as fully as we would like to. I think that's an excellent uh, pro. What else? You tend to rely more on your words than God's, okay? So what's weird is on the one hand, Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers, uses one-line preaching. You know who else does that? Joel Osteen, right? You blah, 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 one line, and then he just holds his Bible and waves it around the rest of the time, and he just says whatever he wants to say about how you can live your best life now, despite the fact that Jesus says that if you're living your best life now, you're going to hell, okay? Uh, your best life is in the life to come. Let me just throw that out there. So yes, uh, you have a tendency where they take one verse, and then they just talk about it the way they want to talk about it, and so sometimes you get more of the preacher uh, than the text. So some pros. It allows you to spend more time on important verses, like uh, Pat mentioned. It's much easier to preach and listen to a sermon with only one point or topic, okay? That's an easier sermon to write, and it's easier to listen to because you know exactly what it is from the start, and it doesn't deviate or change. And you never run out of material to preach, okay? If you do one line per Sunday, you're doing fine. You got a lot of, a lot of stuff to glean from. Now, here's some downsides. The biggest one is that's not how language works. Communication is not done in these little tiny chunks. Those little tiny chunks come, but they happen in a larger context. They happen within uh, a larger structure of paragraphs and books and, uh, and these kind of things. It often doesn't take into account the larger context of what's being said, like, uh, like Katie mentioned. And then the pastor can manipulate uh, the verse to talk about what they want to. 
and it means that you don't have time to hear most of the Bible. So the pastor never runs out of sermons, but by the time you've died, you've heard something like, I don't know, 300 verses of the Bible, and that's it, whatever it might be. So I assume that you live more than like five years or whatever 300 weekends would be, but just go with the illustration. I just made it up like I'm doing one-line preaching. Okay, the next one. Now it starts to get real bad. Unplanned or, and I put quotes around this, spirit-led preaching, where the preacher talks about things they feel led to say in the moment. Okay, now, let me give you one pro to this one. There is one pro to this one. I do think that at least the heart of the person in doing this is trying to rely on God. I would say they're actually testing God, but they're not meaning to do that. The person who does this kind of preaching really is trying to have a heart that's open to God and submitting to God. That's kind of the only pro of this. Who can name a bunch of cons to this type of preaching? Where instead of the diligent work of study and preparation, whereas Paul would say that things like study to show yourself approved, we throw that time to the side and we get up and just, God, I hope you'll speak through my heart today as I preach to these people, and I hope it's you and not the fact that I have indigestion or whatever. What are some, what are some cons to this type of preaching? Yes, it's easy to be totally disorganized. What else? You can't rely on your feelings. God speaks to you through his word. As it's often been said, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read the Bible out loud. The Bible is God's word. He has already put the meaning in the text. The Spirit's job is not to give you new revelation. His job is not to give you the meaning. His job is to clear away your sins and to unfog your glasses so you can see the meaning that's already in the text. You understand that we, as conservative, Protestant, Reformed evangelicals, believe it is the Bible that is God's revelation. It's not what God is doing to you while you're reading the Bible that is God's revelation. That's known as neo-orthodoxy, okay? The Bible itself is the revelation of God, and the Spirit's job is not to give you the meaning. It's to restrain your sin, clear away your presuppositions, these kind of things, so that his job is to do that so that you can see the Bible more clearly, okay? Let me say it this way. I feel most led by the Spirit when I'm doing sermon prep, not when I'm giving the lesson that morning. So most of that time where I feel led by God is during the week when I'm studying, reading through commentaries, looking at the languages, whatever it is, that's where I feel most guided. I'll be studying and something will come to mind to say, oh, that's exactly what that text means and I need to say that. When I get up on Sunday morning, I'm just a mess and I'm nervous and I don't know what I'm going to do. So I just have to rely on the work that's already been done throughout the week, okay? Uh, what I have here in my notes is the pro is that people are trying to rely on God. The con literally just says everything else. <laughs> they get the meaning from the text wrong. That's the biggest problem is they get the meaning of the text wrong. You find the meaning of the text in the text, not by what you think the Spirit's telling you at that time. They say what they want to say. They forget that God discloses his word through study, and a lot of false teaching does this. All right, a lot of the word of faith guys turn on TBN. This is the kind of uh, preaching that they will say that they'll do. They'll even stop in the middle of the sermon and be like, what's that, God? This, you know, as this weird theatrical kind of thing. So anyway, not a fan of that uh, type of preaching. Number four, social or political preaching. Ooh, now it's getting good. Now it's getting juicy. Where contemporary political or social issues drive the focus of the message instead of the actual biblical text, Okay. This, uh, this happens a lot. What's interesting is 30 years ago, a lot of guys were doing this uh, from the side of the right, and today a lot of guys are doing this from the side of the left. So it's weird. It's the same error, uh, but that's, the, that's what you see here uh, with this type of preaching. Now, there is one pro to this type of preaching. Who can think of what it is? Do what now? It's relevant. Yes. Okay, so I would say it this way. 
your theology should engage real life. That's what you mean by relevant. And I think that's absolutely right. So that is the, that is the one pro, I think, of this position, is it's not just trying to be head in the clouds, ivory tower. It's trying to address real issues going on in our lives as it comes to political and social issues. Okay, that's, that's the pro. Now, let me give you several cons here. Number one, you can say more or less than the Bible says on a topic, okay? If you have a, a six-month series on global warming, for or against, whether you believe it or don't believe it, whatever, I'm not, I'm not picking sides up here, you're saying more than the Bible says on that topic, okay? You're saying more than the Bible says on the topic. You focus on doing better socially instead of the gospel. Your gospel can start to become a new gospel where the main problem is not mankind being separated from God because of sin. The main problem becomes how we treat one another, okay? You think that true justice can be brought about through secular government instead of the gospel, okay? Do you think that can happen? Can mankind, apart from the gospel, bring about true justice this side of eternity? You end up pushing whatever your soapbox issue is, or you come down on the wrong side of an issue, okay? So I see this a lot where guys are, are saying, well, we want to be relevant, we want to talk about what's going on, and so we're going to talk about political issues, but then they come down on the wrong side. They come down on the unbiblical side. Here's how I think you should address this. I think what you should do, there's a difference between mentioning political and social issues as they come up in the text. That's different than politicking, right? So if we got up on a Sunday and I spent the entire sermon telling you who you should vote for and didn't read any part of the Bible, that's not good. But as we're reading the Bible, for example, as we're going through Romans and we talk about Romans 13, about submitting to the government and the government bearing the sword and all these kind of things, well, now the text has led us to talk about these things. So what we typically do is we just preach the Bible, and as the Bible is addressing issues going on in society, we address them from the biblical text, but notice that the Bible is driving the preaching. The text is driving the preaching, okay? It's not wrong from time to time, though, to still talk about politics. If we get nuked by North Korea tomorrow, we might step out of Jonah for a few weeks, okay? And just know that's not always wrong, but typically the focus becomes more about how we treat one another than how we are reconciled to God. Now, notice how we treat one another is an implication of the gospel, but it is not the saving content of the gospel. Don't separate those, okay? Don't separate those. Uh, I'm sorry, do separate those. Do separate those things, okay? There are a lot of things that are implications of the gospel, but the saving content of the gospel has to do with Christ and his work and what has been done on your behalf that you might be uh, redeemed, okay? Number five, seeker-sensitive or applicational preaching, where the focus in the sermon is the felt needs of those listening instead of the actual biblical text, where the focus of the, on the sermon is the felt needs of those listening instead of the actual biblical text. Again, I can think of one good pro here and then of a bunch of cons. What's the good pro here? What? It's applicational and you care about people. Yes, it, it seeks to be winsome. It seeks to be evangelistic. A lot of people, probably a lot of people in here got saved at churches that were more kind of seeker sensitive and because they were kind, because they were aware of who's coming in and these kind of things, people get saved and that's a good thing, okay? So the problem's not what they're doing, it's what they're not doing. It's what they're denying or not practicing, which is more of an in-depth style. But the benefit of this is the fact that they are trying to reach lost people, they're trying to be winsome, they're trying to make the gospel look good because it is good, okay? Now the cons to this type of preaching are several. One. It makes you the focus and bends the Bible around you instead of the other way around. A sermon should make the Bible central, and you have to adapt your views and your thoughts around the Bible. 
This type of preaching a lot of times does the opposite. It says, what do you most want to hear about? You're the center of your life. It's all about how you can apply it in your own life. Who cares what God thinks? You've already determined what's important. Now let's twist and bend the Bible around what you already think is important, your felt needs. The Bible would say, forget your felt needs, repent and do what the Bible says, okay? It engenders selfishness. It assumes your problems are not directly linked to your theology. Okay, so if somebody has these issues, they have these concerns, they have a bad job or whatever it might be, the deeper problem there is that there's a place in their thinking that's off. There's a place in their theology that's off, not that they just need five more steps to think positively about themselves and their marriage or whatever it might be, okay? Uh, it's boring, watered down, and anti-intellectual. That's how I feel about it. It's boring. If, you're just, if I don't learn something or get a new insight or get an encouragement into something in the biblical text, I feel like I've wasted my time in listening to a sermon. And then lastly, it doesn't produce full-fledged disciples. Churches that do this are great at evangelism, but the Great Commission is not just evangelism. The Great Commission is to make full-blown disciples, which includes practicing the sacraments, baptizing, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, which is the rest of the Bible, okay? So that last step of making disciples is the one that takes the longest. Number six, I don't even put a list of pros and cons here. I'll just let y'all name some. Arbitrary preaching. What is that? Where a pastor preaches random, arbitrary messages based upon what he wants to say each week. Now, that's different than topical preaching because he's not preaching on topics using different verses from the Bible everywhere. He's just saying, my people seem not to be serving, so I'm going to preach on serving this week, okay? Some new political issue came up, so I'm going to teach on that. I really think my people need to know about the rapture, so I'm going to teach on the rapture, whatever it might be. By the way, we're teaching on eschatology which is the study of the end times next semester. So come back uh, to get my thoughts on whether there is or <clears throat> is not a pre-tribulational rapture. Okay, uh, let's name some pros and cons of uh, this kind of arbitrary style preaching. Can you think of any pros or cons? I mean, there's a bunch of cons. Let's think of a pro. There is a pro. He's trying to meet the needs of his congregation, okay? Sometimes. Some pastors use arbitrary preaching just to say what they want to say, whether their people need that or not, right? But that is, that is one of the, uh, the pros, is a pastor sometimes will say, our people really need to hear this. This is what I think I'm supposed to preach this week, and so that's what I'll do, okay? So that's not necessarily bad. I would challenge to say that what God wants your people to hear is whatever is just in the biblical text, and it will hit people a bunch of different ways because the Spirit will use it how He needs to in people's lives, okay? Lastly, the type of preaching that, uh, that we uh, do here primarily at Parkley. Let me, let me say this, though, real quick. If sometime in the future we did a topical sermon, we have not been unfaithful. We have not abandoned our plans or anything like that, okay? I don't want you to think that the next type of sermon, which is the primary type that we do, we do it almost exclusively. I don't want you to think that it's the only right one or to do something else is somehow wrong. It's not. I just think this next one is best for several reasons. Let me give this to you. Expository preaching. Maybe you've heard that term. <laughs> Expository preaching, what is that? Where a text is read line by line, now listen to this next point, and the points in the sermon are the points in the text, okay? That is what an expository sermon is. If you hear that word expository, so there's a few terms we use. Exegesis or exegetical means we're drawing meaning out of a text. Exegetomai in Greek means to lead out, we're leading meaning out of a text. Expository is where you're taking exegesis and you're making it audible. You are verbally telling people the meaning that you've taken out of the text. Let me read you my little thing. Expository preaching is not where you read a text line by line and just preach the main topic of those lines. It is also not where you read a text line by line and talk about the text the way you want to talk about it. Most churches that claim to be doing expository preaching are really not doing it. Preaching from the Bible is not the same thing as actually preaching the Bible itself. 
Everyone preaches from the Bible. Again, Joel Osteen, he'll read one verse from the Psalms about God's love, and then the rest of it is about how you can grow your business or whatever it is, right? That's different than preaching the Bible. The goal is to say what God is saying and to make it understood by people. That's the goal, okay? That's the goal. Ideally, a preacher would walk through the text line by line, reading the text, and then explaining what it meant in its original context. You can't apply it to your life today until you know what it meant in its original context. They would then explain how it should be understood and applied by us today while making sure they are not contradicting any other part of Scripture. That's known as systematic theology, where you see what the whole Bible says on any topic. Finally, since all the Bible is about Jesus, they should show how the text points to Christ and the gospel, okay? That is the primary type of preaching uh, that, uh, that we do here because I think it's the most faithful. Not just me, the other elders and Jerry before us and elders even before that think it's the most faithful. Why? Because it makes you say what the Bible's saying. It makes you understand things in context. It lets God be the one who's deciding what gets preached that week. Uh, it teaches people how to read the Bible for themselves, etc. okay? The only downside to it is sometimes you can't address other topics that you think are pressing, but I think you can. I think you can go to a topic in the Bible that deals with that and then preach that paragraph ex exegetically, uh, expositorily. Now, let me give you an excellent example of expository preaching from the Bible, okay, from the Bible. Look at this. You might not even know this text is here. Let this encourage you. Is there expository preaching in the Bible? You bet. Nehemiah. Anybody do your devotional this morning out of Nehemiah? Hmm, me neither. Nehemiah 8, 7 through 10. The leaders are the ones teaching. They say this. The leaders helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Look at this next part. They read from the book, that's God's word, the Old Testament, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading, meaning they're reading it line by line, and as they're going, they're commenting on it. They're giving you the sense. They're explaining it to you as you go. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Notice, and I, I could spend a lot of time on this, but I won't for time's sake. Notice the kind of steps that are happen here, okay? Number one, the Bible is read, okay? That's the first step. You have, to under, you have to read the text that's there. Number two, what is just read is then clearly interpreted and explained to the people by the leaders, okay? So they don't just read it. They also explain it as they go. Number three, look at this next part. People are convicted of their sin. They're so convicted of their sin that they start wallowing in shame. And so then what happens in number four? Instead of wallowing in their shame, the people are to rejoice in a renewed relationship with God, Okay? And then the people walk out what they learned by living in obedience. Now, notice, notice this. The Bible's read. It's explained. That brings about conviction of sin. But then, when there's repentance, you don't stay in the shame. You don't wallow in the shame. What do they tell them to do? Go eat a steak and drink alcohol because this is a time of celebration. That's what the text is saying. Eat the fat, eat the steak, and then drink the sweet wine. That's what they're saying. That's the response to God. When you've been forgiven by God because you've been convicted by his word, the response is joy. The response is worship. The response is good things, not you trying to atone for your own sins by how bad you feel. Okay? Next. All preaching should somehow point to grace, the gospel, and Jesus. Okay? Why? 
because if you're not talking about Jesus, you don't understand why the Bible was written. Let me give you a bunch of passages. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Who's the him there? Is that like Isaac or Moses? Who's the him? It's Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. This text just said every promise that you actually think was made to national Israel was actually made to Jesus and those linked to Jesus. Every promise in the Old Testament, every promise of life, every promise of joy is actually fulfilled in Christ, okay? That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice that all of the Bible's about Jesus, okay? As you go through the law, that's really about Jesus. All those purity laws are about how clean Christ was and how clean he makes you. All those passages about the temple are about him. All those passages and the prophets about this coming Messiah who will bear the sins of the world are about Christ. Know that all of the Bible is about Christ. If we're preaching out of Jonah and we draw parallels to the gospel, you know why? Because God intends us to do so because it's all about Jesus, okay? Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham. There's all these promises, especially in the Old Testament, made to Abraham and to his offspring. Lest you think that means plural, Jews, it says this. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This passage said all the promises made to Abraham. That, uh, that he would inherit the world, that his descendants would be king over the world, that they would rule the world is actually fulfilled in Christ. John 5, 46. Jesus says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Okay, notice that. Moses is writing about Jesus, even though he's not mentioned by name, he's writing about Jesus in the Old Testament. <laughs> Acts 13, 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, that's Christ, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, that's about Christ, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him, okay? So here there's a little, uh, little rhetorical trick where, uh, the, where Acts is saying, hey, even though you read Moses all the time, you didn't read him rightly. Though you read the prophets and the synagogues all the time, you didn't read them rightly, because if you did, it would have led you to Christ, and it didn't, which means you missed it, Okay? Jesus, in reading from the Old Testament, Luke 4, 21, and he began to say to him, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Notice that the gospel, the kingdom, the good news that was prophesied in the Old Testament, Jesus says is about him. They ask Jesus to read. He steps up and he says, hey, the good news is gonna be preached to the poor, the blind are gonna be healed where they can see, etc. Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he does like a mic drop and sits down and everybody stares at him. Why? Because he is the fulfillment of those things. Jesus says to the Pharisees that you study the scriptures in vain because you think in them you have eternal life, whereas those scriptures point to me, okay? You do have life in the scriptures, but it's because they point to Jesus. You can't separate the incarnate word from the written word. Those things go together, okay? Now, that's what I mainly have to say about uh, preaching. Now, you'll notice in your notes a whole bunch of more pages here. We're not going to go over this. Let me tell you what this is and how it can be a helpful tool, uh, and then, Jeff, you can, uh, you can start making your way uh, up here if you want. Um, what I've done here is I've included a helpful outline of how to prepare a Bible lesson, okay? You might never preach. That's okay, okay? But maybe you're asked to speak in a funeral. 
Maybe you prepare a Bible study lesson for your community group. Maybe you're a lady and you're meeting with a group of ladies and y'all are studying the Bible and these kind of things. What I've done is I've put a helpful outline of kind of a lesson or a sermon preparation process that you can hopefully use. It's divided into three parts. First is observation, what's in the text. The second is interpretation, what does the text mean? And then the third part there is application. How do we apply this to our lives today? Now, there's not a formula for preparing a sermon. It's not like a one-to-one. It's not like doing coding, ones and zeros and these kind of things. By the way, I saw a funny t-shirt that said, there are 10 kinds of people in the world, people who understand binary and people who don't, which I thought was pretty clever. All the people that know computers laughed. No one else, uh, no one else did. So uh, anyway, so uh, it, it, it's not as though you can just follow this formula and all of a sudden you have a great sermon or the meaning of the text. But I just wanted to give you some sort of tool. Maybe you're just studying the Bible on your own and you want to do more in-depth Bible study. This can be a helpful outline for you of trying to figure out what's going on uh, in that passage. I just wanted to, to equip you and give you a tool there to use. Jeffrey, come on up here and teach us about preaching. Um, first, uh, first question. You mentioned uh, in your list of uh, different types of preaching, you mentioned uh, what uh, I think we called unplanned or spirit-led preaching, and then you also mentioned arbitrary preaching. Those sound similar, so can you help us to kind of uh, distinguish between those two? What's the difference between unplanned or spirit-led preaching and quote-unquote arbitrary preaching? Yeah, so in spirit-led preaching, by the way, I put the quotes around spirit-led intentionally, okay? Uh, I don't think it's actually spirit-led. Let me say it that way. Uh, The difference is with that kind of, uh, you know, you're just up there and you're just trying to say whatever you feel like God's laying on your heart to say in that moment. I think the difference is is you're trying to let God drive what you're saying. In arbitrary preaching preaching where you're just picking a message, you're driving what you're saying. So I think those are the, the main differences between the two. But I think they both have the same error. I think that those who begin by looking for God's voice in their heart instead of Scripture end up confusing God's voice with theirs. But in one, the person doesn't do sermon prep, though, right? So in spirit-led preaching, the the pastor gets up. He might have read the text, read a little bit about it that week, and then he just starts talking. At least in the arbitrary preaching, he's actually studying whatever text he wants to say that week. He's wanting to say it, but it's still God's Word, and at least he's studying it. So those would be a few differences, but feel free to bash bash those more if we need to. That's great. Um, Okay, next question. What are your thoughts on online uh, sermons? So I'll give a few thoughts and then uh, kick it to you. Uh, so we post sermons online, and our hope and expectation is if you miss a Sunday that you're listening to that. That, that is, whether you know that or not, our expectation uh, is that you would hear every single sermon that is preached at Parkway. In order to understand what's going on in Jonah 1.17, as we're talking about today, you need to understand what happened last week in Jonah 1, 4 through 16. It's kind of like watching a show, and, uh, and you miss an episode in the middle, you're kind of missing out on the, the context. And so, uh, so we post our sermons online, but those are always intended to be a supplement uh, to and not a substitute for the actual gathering together of the saints. And so we've, we've talked before about how we are not fans of quote-unquote online church. And, uh, and so online assembly is an oxymoron. You're not assembling with other people if you are unable to actually assemble with other people. Now, there's obviously ex- exceptions if you are uh, an invalid or something like that. Uh, but in general, uh, if the online sermon is just a supplement to your uh, gathering with the saints, 
and listening to an actual pastor who knows you and is in relationship with you and all those kinds of things, they can be helpful. If that is in any sense a substitute for your involvement in a local church, that is not a good thing. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's so <clears throat> there's a difference between using resources and replacing things. I'm fine with you using resources. You just don't want to replace them. So you can't replace the church. You can't replace the gathering, right? So you take communion with others. I've always thought it's funny about how, I, I guess this is how an online church does excommunication. They just unfriend you or something. I don't know how that works. You need people. You need real relationships to be able to do these things. But to supplement your walk with other things is totally fine. Read other books. Listen to other sermons. Listen to other sermons by other churches. Uh, read blogs. Do all of that. But don't replace church and just sit at home because you really just want to sit at home and say, oh, I'm doing church because I listen to this sermon in my car as I drive to work or something like that. So, again, the problem's not what, sometimes what we're doing. It's what we're not doing. If you want to add things, you can, you can always go above and beyond uh, being a part of the body. You just don't want to do less than that. So. Great. Um, I think this is a great, this is a great question. Uh, so you mentioned uh, kind of an example from Nehemiah, uh, expository sermon in the Old Testament, uh, but we have dozens of uh, examples of sermons in the New Testament, and it doesn't seem like we have examples of expository sermons in the New Testament. Can you help us understand why might that be? Yeah, I'll contradict that claim, and then I'll let you speak to it. So one, we do have several in the New Testament. So for example, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he takes the passage from the Old Testament that David's body will not see decay, and he extrapolates that to say Jesus didn't see decay because he was resurrected, etc. You see this in Galatians, where the Apostle Paul is making a case to the fact that uh, Abraham's seed is singular. He's doing some very detailed exegesis to explain this point. Okay, so I actually do think that you have very similar to what we would think of today as expository sermons in the New Testament. Additionally, you need to realize we're not given the entire sermon. Peter's sermon at Pentecost what is, probably didn't last two minutes as you read those few paragraphs. It was probably longer. Those are summaries uh, and these kind of things. Same thing I think is true with Jonah. He might have preached a longer sermon. We don't know. Uh, a lot of those are sermons. But I do think you have giving the Old Testament text walking through it and explaining it and making it about Christ, that's an expository sermon. So I actually would say that I do think you have those things uh, in the New Testament, but I'm sure you got some other thoughts too on another way to tackle that question. Uh, yeah, I mean, my thoughts were, uh, I think you do see it. Uh, secondly, you're, you're, you're only getting a snapshot. You're not getting, you're getting a summary of the sermon. You're not getting the actual thing. You're getting kind of Cliff Notes version of, uh, of Peter's sermon or Paul's sermon or whatever it might be. And the other thing is just to recognize that uh, what we're seeing in Scripture tends to be transitional. And so uh, as we were talking about, we already have, the canon is closed at this point. God is no longer revealing himself uh, in, in the way that he is with uh, the, the apostles and apostolic uh, revelation. And so uh, now we are much more looking backwards, whereas when the apostles are preaching, there is a sense in which there is ongoing revelation. That's no longer the case for us. And so we would expect to be somewhat different uh, from what we experience today versus them. And then last question that I think is, uh, is fun. You, you talk about it a little bit in... Uh, in the example of the sermon preparation process, but uh, why don't we both just kind of give a, a brief summary of what does sermon prep look like for us? Yeah, I think sermon prep looks different for different people. So like, for example, Tim might just listen to an old Mark Driscoll sermon and then just repeat it word for word. He might, <laughs> might just steal it online. I try to go to a high mountain and levitate and pray in Latin, you know, so there's a lot of different things you can do to prepare your heart. Uh, okay, so one, the sermon prep process begins several weeks out, okay? That's one of the reasons we switch off preachers. It allows us to have more time to prepare sermons. 
we already have what the text is going to be as far as the, the verses, but we don't know what it's about yet. So we meet before each new sermon series and we outline the book and make sure that we're getting the correct thoughts kind of to, you know, uh, where we can, basically our goal is to say, where is there one complete thought? And that's the text for that week, okay? We don't know what the complete thought is. We don't know exactly what it means, but we create an outline. And then what we do is, uh, my process is very similar to, to kind of this. It starts with prayer, reading the text, reading the text in Greek or Hebrew, outlining or diagramming or phrasing the passage. That gets a little technical, just making sure that you're relating the correct adjectives to the nouns and all that kind of stuff. Uh, reading the passage in several different Bible translations. That way you can see where the translational differences occur, where some of the difficult things are. Most of the time is spent reading through the passage and trying to ask as many possible questions as I can. Okay? So you can do, what is, you know, you had to do that at, uh, with uh, Bible study methods where you had to come up with how many questions for like one verse? The original was, uh, was 50, and then you turn that in, and you, then you do 50 more, and then you turn that in, and you do 50 more. So. Yeah. So you can ask hundreds of questions on a certain passage, everything from when was this written, why is it written, why does he use this word here, why is this? The, the goal is to make sure you see everything that's in the text, and you create a bunch of questions. Then your job is to try to answer all those questions that you've created, and that's where you can use resources, you use commentaries, these kind of things. And then uh, once you've gotten the meaning of the text, this is an oversimplification, then the goal is how do I say it to people and make it relevant and make it interesting and not just get up there and be like subpoint B6 means this Greek word or whatever it is. And so preaching is a whole different thing than the sermon prep process. So rhetoric is different than kind of the interpretation. But those are some random discombobulated thoughts. What do you have? Yeah, I mean, I would encourage you to read that entire uh, process that Zach listed out because I think that is, uh, is helpful. I think one of the things just to, uh, to avoid is... Uh, there's a, there should be a certain distinct order to the way that you do things. And, uh, and so what I see oftentimes in culture is, uh, is people who run immediately to a commentary or run immediately to listen to a Mark Driscoll sermon or uh, run immediately to one of those supplemental sort of things uh, versus saying, you know what, I'm going to do my hard work of studying first and then I'm going to supplement that by listening and seeing what other godly people have said uh, about this uh, in addition to that. And so I think it always has to start with you doing the hard work yourself. Same way with the commentary. You don't run to a commentary first. You do all of the studying. You look at the Greek. You look at the Hebrew. You look at all of those kinds of things first. You diagram it uh, and all that. And then you look at a commentary and say, okay, what do, what do actual scholars who have spent their entire lives studying this particular passage and are infinitely more uh, adept at, uh, at Greek or Hebrew, whatever it might be. What did they say about the text? And then that can be kind of a checks and balance uh, for you. And, uh, and so, so I think that's one of the things. And then also when it comes to, uh, on the other side of the spectrum, you have people who don't consult commentaries at all don't care about what others have said throughout history. This is part of our, our culture just kind of completely letting go of tradition as if that's a bad thing or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so, so I think there has to be a distinct order to it. Likewise, when it comes to things like illustrations. And so uh, I've known a lot of guys who have said, I have this great illustration, and then they've tried to find a text that fits it. And so there, there just has to be an order to the way that you do things. That There has to be a, a priority that begins with you wrestling with the text itself and then finding uh, supplemental information uh, after that and then finding an illustration that helps uh, that is actually aligned with what you're talking about. So, uh, again, I'd encourage you to, uh, to check that out. Uh, I think we... Uh, in general, although each of us kind of approach it a little differently, 
uh, would all kind of go along with this general sort of outline. So. Yeah, let me, let me give you one more thing, because I know there's a bunch of information, so let me make it as simple as I can. When I read a biblical text, what I try to do is, in my own words, give an interpretation of it. I think this text means blank, and then I give the reasons for that, okay? I think this text means that Jesus is saying this, and here's why I think that, because in verse 6 it says this, because in verse 8 it says this, and elsewhere in the Bible it says this. So I give a clear statement and the reasons I believe it. Here's the part most people miss. I then think of other ways that it can be taken. I then think of other interpretations and give the reasons for those interpretations, and I see which one has the stronger case. That's really what you're doing. The, the pastor's job is to tell you what a text means, but you as the congregation should make him prove it. Your job is to hold him accountable and say, don't just say that means that. Show me why that means that and why my friend who holds this view and a Roman Catholic who holds this view and this person holds this view, why they're wrong. Explain to me. I want to know all the options and then why yours is best. Don't just say, trust me. So. Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that the hope is is that uh, not only in this do you learn how to be a, you know, expository or exegetical uh, preacher, but how do you as a congregation, how are y'all expository listeners? And so we actually have a, a blog on that. Did you mention that? I don't know if you mentioned that. Mm -mm. Uh, we have a, a blog. What's it called, Tim, you remember? Exegetical listening. And, uh, and so I'd encourage you to read that. That is part of the covenant that you make with uh, this body is that you are going to come and you're going to not just glaze over uh, whenever there is the sermon, but you're going to actually participate in it, not merely being a recipient, but actually participate in the process by you asking questions of us and, uh, and making us prove it. And so if you have any questions about any of these uh, further things, we'd love to, to buy you lunch or coffee or something like that. But that uh, was all the questions that got texted in. So, Zach, you want to pray? Sure, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this time and uh, for this lesson. I pray that uh, people would leave not bogged down, but rather encouraged, that, uh, that in your infinite wisdom you've given us your word, that we don't have to wonder who you are. We don't have to wonder how we can be saved. We don't have to wonder what's sin and what's not sin. We don't have to do what the pagans did where they're cutting themselves to make it rain or sacrificing their children to the fire because they don't know what pleases you. Instead, you've told us in black and white. And so I pray that this wouldn't just be an exercise of uh, futility. I pray this wouldn't just be a chance to talk about our job or something like that. I pray that we would take these tips, we would take these hints, and for the rest of our lives, as we listen to the word proclaimed, we would be good Bereans. We would study together and see if that's true, see if what's being taught is accurate, if it's uh, righteous, where we would see that most of the differences are not between what's obviously right and obviously wrong, but most of what we have to discern is what's right and what's almost right. So would you help us be discerning? Let us not be deceived by uh, the devil who appears as an angel of light, where it often there's a, seems to be a little good mixed in with a little bit of the bad. Would you help us be especially uh, on guard against that? And so we want to ask it all in Christ's name, amen.